Hi everyone, welcome back to Jew on a Gnome. One of the stranger and still unresolved incidents in Zionist history took place on a Shabbat evening in June of 1933. Chaim Arlozorov, a prominent leader of the Zionist movement in the Yishuv, the Jewish community in Palestine, was walking along the beach in Tel Aviv with his wife. We know that two men wearing suits approached him in the dark, shone a flashlight in his face, and shot him dead. And while no one was definitively convicted for his murder, and there's a lot of theories out there, we think maybe we know who did it, and maybe we know why. It has to do with the Nazis. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew I Don't Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Zionism has long suffered accusations that the movement and its Jewish leaders collaborated with the Nazis. You hear this all the time from the anti-Israel crowd. The word collaboration in the context of the Nazis suggests that somehow the Zionist movement was complicit in the Nazis' genocidal rampage through Europe a patently anti-Semitic notion designed by ignorant jackasses to piss everyone off. But at least I got that out of my system. Okay, but there is a grain of truth in there. In the early 1930s, disoriented by the rapid rise of Hitler and what that would mean for European Jewry, Zionist leaders debated how to effectively respond. For a window of time in the 1930s, both the Nazis and the Zionists were aligned in seeing the benefits of getting the Jews out of Germany and into the British Mandate in Palestine. The question was, should the Yishuv take advantage of this opportunity? Or was any agreement with the Nazis beyond the pale for the Jewish community? As usual, the Zionist movement split between David Ben-Gurion and his followers on one side and Zev Jabotinsky and his cohort on the other. This debate would result in Chaim or Lozarov's murder on the beach in Tel Aviv. Meine Arbeit für Richtigkeits, ob du glaubst, dass ich fleißig gewesen bin, dass ich gearbeitet habe, dass ich mich in diesen Jahren für dich eingesetzt In early 1933, Adolf Hitler rose to power as the Chancellor of Germany, followed soon after by his Nazi party taking over the German government. For the next 12 years, the Zionist movement will go up against the most implacable foe in the history of the Jewish people. They will have to respond to the horrors of the Nazis while also continuing to build the Jewish homeland in Palestine against both Arab opposition and the seesawing policies of the British Mandate. Now, I'm assuming that you know the basics of your World War II and Holocaust history, so I won't get into it here, but the main thing that you may or may not remember is that, okay, Hitler hated the Jews. And yet, he wasn't ready to kick them out of Germany, not in the early 1930s. The Nazis worried that if large numbers of Jews left, they would lend support to the growing effort for an international economic boycott. And given that they were a significant part of the German workforce, the sudden loss of so much labor would also negatively impact the German economy. Still, if a creative solution could be found that got the Jews out of Germany but kept the repercussions to a minimum, Hitler would be interested. Enter Chaim Arlozorov. Chaim Lozarov was actually an interesting guy. Born in the Ukraine in 1899, he belonged to the labor Zionist tree branch. I feel like I haven't talked about the Zionist tree for a while. 
The labor Zionists were the socialists who wanted to fuse socialist idealism with Zionist aims like Jews developing agriculture and speaking Hebrew while doing it. His first experience in Palestine was witnessing the violent 1921 riots that I talked about back in episode 36. But instead of coming away with the conclusion that Arabs and Jews would be forever in conflict, he instead believed that the young Arab nationalist movement was legitimate, and that the Yishuv ought to work harder at coexistence. He still advocated a strong Jewish self-defense, but he repeatedly clashed with Jabotinsky for what Alozarov considered unnecessary provocations. They really went after each other following the devastating massacres of 1929 that I talked about last week. Alozarov thought that Jabotinsky and his followers bore some of the responsibility for arousing Arab anger. He also wasn't the best buddies with David Ben-Gurion. By the 1930s, Ben-Gurion was extremely skeptical about the efficacy of relying on and working with the British to achieve Zionist goals. The British seemed intent on rolling back the full-throated support they had given the Zionist movement in the 1920s. So a number of prominent Zionists were coming to the conclusion that the Jews were just going to have to create their homeland all by themselves. But Arlozarov was still on board with working with the British to achieve Jewish statehood if for no other reason than to make sure that the Arabs wouldn't be the only ones that the British listened to. And in this effort, he had a good friend. My birthday buddy, Chaim Weitzman. Weitzman was heading up a new organization in the Yishuv to carry out the work of the Zionist movement. It was called the Jewish Agency. Its goal was to encourage and facilitate Jewish immigration and the development of the land of Israel and to represent the global Jewish community there. It still exists. So it's a long story, but basically the problem was this. The Yishuv needed more money than just the Zionist movement could provide. But since not all Jews, especially not the really wealthy ones, supported the creation of a Jewish state, they didn't necessarily want to give their money to the Zionist movement. So the idea was for the Jewish agency to represent both camps, Zionists and non-Zionists, while still being run in Palestine by the Zionists. For a variety of reasons, it never really worked out that the non-Zionists ever had much influence, but, you know, Jews argue and then we move on with the podcast. The point of all this is that the British recognized the Jewish agency as the representative body of the Jewish community in all matters of relations between the British Mandate government and the Jews in Palestine. Think of it as the Jewish government before the State of Israel was created, and actually it was the Jewish government before the State of Israel was created. And to bring it all back together, despite his not-so-great relations with Jabotinsky and Ben-Gurion, Arlozarov rose to a senior leadership position in the Jewish agency, from where he had the authority to pursue all kinds of prominent projects. Still believing in the need for Arab-Jewish reconciliation and cooperation, he had an idea to bring leaders of the two sides together. In April 1933, two months before he was killed, he invited Zionist officials and Arab leaders from Transjordan to meet for lunch at the King David Hotel, Jerusalem's most famous hotel. Still is. The idea was that if the Jews could improve relations with the Arab leaders of Transjordan, they would in turn improve relations with the Arabs of Palestine, and eventually would find a way to live with each other in a bi-national state. The Arab rulers of Transjordan were on board, as was Chaim Weitzman and a couple future Israeli prime ministers and presidents who were then serving as low-level leaders in the Jewish agency. But it didn't work. The scheme was rejected by Arab extremists in Palestine and by Jabotinsky's right-wing movement, the Revisionist Zionists. Remember, the Revisionists' foundational principle was that there could be no cooperation with the Arabs. The Arabs, they believed, would never accept the Jewish presence in Palestine, 
and so the Jews had to build and maintain their iron wall, a system of self-defense so strong that the Arabs would have no choice but to accept the Jews. The recent riots of 1929 had convinced the revisionists that their perspective was the correct one, and they weren't totally unjustified to think that. A few of their more militant members even muttered that Elozerov ought to be killed for his intransigence. So with his Arab-Jewish peace project on the skids, Arlozarov turned to another scheme in the works. He and the rest of world Jewry watched with great trepidation as Nazi Germany began passing anti-Jewish laws, kicking Jews out of government jobs, and boycotting Jewish businesses. But he thought he saw an opening to get some Jews out. So here's an interesting tidbit for you. Back during World War I, Chaim became friends with, and possibly had a romantic relationship with, a German woman named Magda. In 1939, Magda married an up-and-coming Nazi party leader named Joseph Goebbels. So yes, it is entirely possible that the future Mrs. Nazi Germany once had a fling with a Jewish Zionist leader, which takes the cake on even some of the crazier ex-girlfriends that I've had. Anyway, Goebbels, Hitler's propaganda minister, was probably none too thrilled with his wife's former Jewish possible lover. And anyway, he had her Jewish stepfather sent to be murdered at Buchenwald, too. Magda herself became just as ruthless as her husband, hunkered down in Hitler's bunker the day after Adolf committed suicide in 1945. Magda murdered six of her young children so that they wouldn't have to grow up in a world without national socialism. Definitely nuttier than my exes. But anyway, one lingering theory for the Alozarov murder in 1933 is that Goebbels sent some of his thugs to Tel Aviv to do it. No one really believes this. What did happen, whether through his connection with Magda or not, was that Olozarov, age 34, made contact with the Nazi hierarchy on behalf of the Zionist leadership in Palestine, authorized to negotiate on their behalf. But here's the thing. Do you negotiate with the Nazis or not? It was a profound moral question, neither the first nor the last in Zionist and Israeli history, of having to make enormously difficult life-and-death decisions with great urgency and uncertain consequences. And on the one hand, there might be good reason to support the idea of cutting a deal with the Nazis. As I mentioned, Hitler wasn't interested in letting the Jews leave Germany. In fact, the Nazis passed a law to this effect. But the international boycott was hurting the German economy, and the Middle Eastern desert seemed like it could be a convenient place to dump a bunch of Jews who hated the Nazis anyway. And for the Zionists, a huge influx of Jewish immigrants and their wealth would be of significant benefit in both material terms and for the fact that Britain had been trying to put some limits on Jewish immigration. So a surge of new people would be a boon for the Palestinian economy and the settling of the land by Jews. And so, bizarre as it seems, in the spring of 1933, the Nazis and the Zionists had something of an alignment on what to do with the Jews of Germany. But again, should the Zionists seize the opportunity? Jabotinsky and his revisionist movement were absolutely against it. Our Jewish interests, he said, demand the complete destruction of Germany. Collectively and individually, the German nation is a threat to us as Jews. Any dealings whatsoever with Nazi Germany, any support of any kind from anywhere for Hitler and his thugs, would be a betrayal of the Jewish people. Jabotinsky was pushing the boycott hard as was, by the way, the American Jewish community. 
Germany was terrified of the boycott, of economic strangulation, and by the extreme power of the Jews that their anti-Semitic adult brains assumed was behind the whole thing. The Nazis worried that a successful boycott would end their regime before it began. And here's the other catch. Germany and Palestine were pretty tightly linked economically. Before Hitler, there was no reason not to be. So, for example, Germany was the biggest importer of the main product of Palestine. Oranges. The Yishuv then had a big dilemma. Helping the Jews of Germany meant that they couldn't have a boycott. But not having a boycott meant that they would be financially and materially supporting the Nazi regime. So what to do? It was a massive, worldwide, take-no-prisoners Jewish fight that got very ugly, with each side accusing the other of risking Jewish lives. They didn't know then, of course, about the coming Holocaust, but they did have a sense that Jewish history in Europe was coming to an end one way or the other. And given that conclusion, plus the proximity of the land of Israel, plus Germany's willingness to consider some kind of deal, ultimately led the Zionist movement choosing to negotiate. That decision would save Jewish lives, but it would cost Chaim Arlozorov his. In April 1933, Arlozorov headed to Germany to ink a deal with the Nazis. It was called Haavara Agreement, meaning transfer. Now bear in mind that I'm a Jewish history guy, not in fintech, but let me see if I can explain it. Okay, so you're a German Jew and you want to get out and head to Palestine. But Germany, remember, doesn't want to turf you out with all your money. They want your assets to stay in Germany to support the German economy. So your accounts are frozen, but you can leave. And here's where it gets clever and allows everyone to both save face and to benefit economically. Your frozen accounts are turned over to a Zionist trust company, which uses your money to purchase German goods, thereby ensuring that your money stays in the German economy. Then the goods, and you, are shipped off to Palestine, where they are sold to customers. The proceeds of those sales are given back to you, minus the trust companies keeping a small percentage for state-building projects like buying more land. So economically, everyone wins. The Nazis rake in a ton of money from Jews leaving. Individual Jews receive equal value in Palestine for whatever they left behind so that they're not left destitute. And the Yishuv gets desperately needed funds to purchase land, build more infrastructure, and enlarge Jewish towns. It's hard to accurately compare the various currencies involved then to the worth in dollars now, but it's probably fair to say that the Haavara Agreement netted Germany well over a billion dollars. So forget boycotting Germany. The Zionist movement was buying up German goods at least as fast as they could be loaded onto ships for Palestine. Jabotinsky and his revisionist followers were pretty unhappy about all this. But he also very much acknowledged the flip side. From 1933 to 1939, the transfer agreement saved 60,000 Jewish lives. 60,000 Jews who otherwise would have been murdered instead came to Palestine and poured in considerable wealth to keep building the Jewish homeland even while the dark clouds gathered over Europe. The whole situation was ironic, and in a terrible way. The author Edwin Black notes that the more German goods the Zionists sold for Germany, the more Jewish lives they got to save. And just because he was adamantly against the Haavara Agreement doesn't mean that Jabotinsky was sanguine about the threat to European Jewry. He was aggressive about urging the Jews to leave. I found the coolest thing. 
Jabotinsky did something that to us today is completely obvious, but back then was wonderfully innovative and effective. He made a YouTube video. Okay, well not YouTube, so much as a reel and projector and whatever they transferred analog film on back then, like a clay tablet or papyrus or something. He got a room, filled it up with his relatives, and filmed himself speaking in Yiddish and using a chalkboard to give a PowerPoint update on the needs of Palestine, and all but demanding that Jews leave Europe and come at once. Which is actually sort of how I make this podcast, except I use a row of stuffed animals for an audience. Anyway, here's Jabotinsky. Historisch ist das nicht nur ein Teil von Eretz Israel, es ist, wie ihr wisst, der historische Anfang von Eretz Israel. Ooh, it's so cool to hear Jabotinsky's actual voice. I haven't been able to find a translation in English, but he's talking in this video about the benefits of moving to Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, and how everyone needs to come. Back in Palestine, anger over the transfer agreement reached a fever pitch, until, on the morning of Chaim Arlozarov's death, one of the more militant revisionist newspapers published an op-ed that could easily be interpreted as a call to murder. And that night, June 16, 1933, Arlozarov was shot dead. So who did it? Three revisionists were arrested and charged with the murder. Two were acquitted, and one, Abraham Stavsky, was convicted. But his conviction was later overturned on some technicalities. Left-wing Zionists like Ben-Gurion and Weizmann maintained their belief that the revisionists did it. The feud never went away. Israel continued to periodically investigate the murder all the way into the 1980s, finally concluding, under a revisionist prime minister, that the revisionists had nothing to do with it. It was the first, but definitely not the last time, that the Zionists would turn on each other to the point of extreme violence. In fact, Stavsky himself was killed in a Zionist-on-Zionist -Zionist battle on the same beach in Tel Aviv in 1948. The two men today have memorials a half mile apart from each other. The 60,000 Jews whose lives were saved because of the transfer agreement became a crucial part of the fifth Aliyah, which ran from around 1929 to the start of World War II in 1939. Some 250,000 Jews settled in Palestine, bringing the total number of Jews there to around 450,000. So it was a truly massive influx, more than doubling the size of the Yishuv. Half these Jews were middle-class professionals from Central Europe. So rather than straining the Palestinian economy, they mostly boosted it. They largely settled in the bigger cities like Tel Aviv, and they turned Haifa into the industrial powerhouse that it is today, building its iconic port and other industries. Where the Yishuv had previously been a relatively small percentage of the total population of Palestine, it was now burgeoning to almost 50%. But as we've learned, an increase in Jewish immigration leads to a violent reaction from the Arabs. And so a truly humongous increase was bound to lead to a truly enormous response. And as for the Ha'avara agreement, it ended in 1939, but one of the reasons that I find this story so compelling is that its moral repercussions still seem relevant. Take the following imperfect, but still kind of similar example. A couple months ago, Donald Trump pulled the United States out of the international agreement with Iran that President Obama had negotiated. 
Under its basic terms, Iran would cease pursuing nuclear weapons in exchange for the lifting of economic sanctions and a hefty sum of money from the United States. In other words, an end to the international economic boycott. An economic boost that everyone knew would be used to further Iran's other nefarious but non-nuclear pursuits like terrorism. And yet it was the prospect of Iran going nuclear that most immediately threatened Israel. Yet Israel hated the deal, actively lobbied against it for years, and could not hide their pleasure when Trump denounced it. And yet, looking back on this story of the transfer agreement, I wonder what the Zionist leadership back then would have made of the Iran situation now. Because that question still lingers. Is the moral cause for boycott so powerful and convincing that we're willing to take the chance that it won't work, and by then it will be too late? Or should the Jews offer help to their own sworn enemy if it means protecting Jewish lives in the short term? I wonder what Chaim or Lozarov would make of that question today. Okay, so 41 episodes in and still growing strong, and I have to say this is actually like one of my favorites. Chaim Orlozorov presents a fantastic way to understand what was happening with Zionism in the 1930s, and as a storyteller I couldn't resist him as a symbol. But the story is about to get a bit more complicated, and it's going to take me a couple of episodes to get through it. While the Yishuv watched the Nazis gather strength in Europe and worked desperately to get as many Jews out as they could, in 1936 the Arabs in Palestine revolted. And unlike the riots of the 1920s, which lasted a few days or a week each time, this rebellion would go on for three straight years. And maybe it never really ended. Either way, it had profound consequences and contradictions for Jews, Arabs, and the British, and marked the beginning of the end of the British Mandate, the emergence of a distinct Palestinian identity, and the eventual establishment of the Jewish homeland. In other words, yeah, things are about to get worse. Talk to you next time. <laughs>